This is Anthony and Areno, and you're listening to In the Arena. I spent four or five years in Toastmasters learning how to speak professionally. It was a transformational experience for me, and I'd always had the confidence to stand up and speak, having spent most of my young adult life fronting a rock and roll band and playing in bars before I was even old enough to be in those bars. But a couple of years ago, after I was already speaking professionally, Michael Port, a speaker who I was familiar with but didn't really know, launched a program in what I will call here his life's work. This program is called Heroic Public Speaking, and one of the first videos Michael sent out to promote the program was a list of 50 common mistakes that speakers make. And I took a look at the video and I downloaded the PDF that came with it. And then I saw the first rule, don't point at people. Guilty as charged. Instead, you're supposed to gesture with your hand. Who knew this? I didn't know this. I'd never even heard such a thing before. When someone introduces you, start speaking immediately. The audience is already looking at you and the show has already begun. So the last speech that I gave before watching Michael and his wife Amy Port's first video required me to walk about 30 yards to the center of a massive stage. And I did so in this awkward, awful, uncomfortable silence. And it wasn't only awful for me having to walk all that distance in silence. It was awful for the audience. It was terrible. I didn't know that no matter where you are, you start speaking, but I learned that. And I thought, this is what's on the free videos. What in God's name is in the program? This is great content. So if you've never seen Michael speak, you've never seen a preternatural speaker who can give you an experience like none you have ever seen. I promise you that. It's amazing to watch Michael speak. And if you want to be a great speaker, you're going to want to work with Michael and Amy Port. And you have an opportunity to do that now at Heroic Public Speaking. You're going to learn how to perform and you're going to be transformed. You're also going to massively upgrade your content and you're going to learn the business of speaking. There is no better speaking program anywhere on earth and there are no two better teachers. So go now to heroicpublicspeaking.com forward slash live and sign up for the October 31st Heroic Public Speaking in Fort Lauderdale. You're going to meet amazing people. You're going to have an amazing experience. You're going to be transformed and you're going to be the best speaker that you can possibly be. And Michael and Amy will make sure of that. Don't miss it. Our good friend of the In the Arena podcast, Bob Berg, introduced me to Bruce Turkel, another resident of Florida. Bruce is in Miami. And if you don't know Bruce, you've got to know Bruce and you've got to pick up his work. Bruce is a brand expert and he's worked with brands like Hasbro, Nike, American Express, Charles Schwab, Citicorp, Discovery, Bacardi, and the list goes on and on and on. He's a speaker. He's an author. He's regularly on Fox Business to talk about branding. He's cited in the New York Times and in Adweek all the time. And he is an amazing thinker with a new book, 
that you absolutely must pick up now. It is a book that will absolutely transform your results as a salesperson, even though you may not see it in that light until you get into the book. It's called All About Them. The subtitle is Grow Your Business by Focusing on Others. And you know how important I believe it is for you to be other-oriented, not self-oriented, if you read the blog and if you listen to this podcast. So welcome Bruce Turkel in the arena. Good morning, Bruce. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? (laughs) Good. You get up early, I know, because we're doing this early on a Sunday morning and not a lot of people want to do a podcast early on Sundays. You know, it might have been because I get up early. It might have been because I want to get on your schedule and I figured the best thing to do is find the time (laughs) when you're available. I'm available early in the morning. That's my favorite time. I just want to introduce people to you in a more general way here at the beginning. So tell me about how you got into design work and branding? The design part was easy. It's actually all I ever wanted to do. When I was a kid, I was the one in class who was always drawing pictures of the teachers. And in fact, I still do. I don't go to a meeting where I don't draw caricatures of everybody in the meeting. I just nowadays try not to show it to them. It used to mean you get sent to the principal's office. Now it means you lose a client. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of careful about it, but I always wanted to do that. So I studied design in college I wanted to be an art director. I wanted to be a designer. I got out of school. I went to New York. I worked there for a little bit, came back to Miami because I really missed the water and I missed Miami. And I worked in a few firms and then I started a little design firm myself. And then one day I had a client who asked me if we could place an ad for them. I said, sure, I don't see why not. And I discovered the magic of media commissions because in (laughs) the design world, Unless you get residuals, which is rare, you design something once and you get paid once. But in the advertising world, you design something once, but you get paid every time it runs. And I thought, I like this. This is good. So we morphed into an advertising agency. At the turn of the century, I guess, around 2000 or so, we were doing quite well. We had a number, a few specialties. We did travel and tourism and healthcare. And I started to realize at some point that really what made all the difference was positioning. You could run an ad, you could offer something, you could show something and you could get people excited. But that was a one-time kind of activity. But the bigger, deeper, more profound benefit was the ability to create a positioning in a consumer's mind, more importantly, in a consumer's heart. So we spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time paying attention to that. I don't think very many people use the word branding at the time, but the idea was, let's not just do an ad that offers a deal, but let's really get into the psyche of the consumer and see if there's a way that we can figure out how we can build a relationship between them and the customer. While we're doing that, a couple things change. Number one, we have the dot-com explosion, number one, and all of a sudden, the way we communicate with people changes. All of a sudden, we introduce all of these new technologies and all of these new ways of talking to people. Number two, the other thing that happens a couple of years later is that we have the Great Recession. And all of a sudden, people are much more careful about where they spend their money, why they spend their money, and how they spend their money. I call that post-traumatic recessionary stress disorder. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it was very traumatic, especially when you're running a business during those times. But what we also found was the people that believed in particular products and services were still buying them. The people who wanted a vacation in certain places were still doing it. Maybe they were doing it less often, or maybe they were giving something else up, but they were continuing to buy those things that mattered to them. And so in 2006, I wrote a book called Building Brand Value. And the idea was, how do you build a brand? I tried to take away the subjectiveness because let's face it, it's a science, but it's also an art. 
But I tried to say, okay, the art part, we understand that's difficult to quantify. Just like, hey, is that a nice painting? Hey, is that a great piece of music? It's very difficult to say, but can we quantify the other parts? And I came up with seven points that were required to build a brand that can take you through these bad times. Because of the book, I started speaking at a lot of conferences. I spoke at Harvard and MIT and a bunch of other places. And I would always ask the audience, am I missing something? Is there something else here? So that really it got trial by fire. It got trial in the field. We started in the agency doing a lot of this work with clients, positioning, placement based on using these seven points. But over that time, remember that was now, what, 10 years ago? So about eight years ago, it dawned on me that one of them, one of the points was the key. One of the points made more difference than any other. And so that's where the research on the new book started. And that's what the new book came out of. Yeah, the new book, all about them. And it's brilliant. I'm halfway through it. I can't read it fast enough, number one. And I only have the PDF, which is not the best reading format for me, because I want my hands on the physical book which will be available September 6th? September 6th. But lucky for you, they, the publisher sent me a few copies for my mom. Um, so I'm going to take one of my mom's copies and I'm going <laughs> to drop, drop it in FedEx for you. Oh, mom's not going to like this, but I am. Well, let's get into the book. I just wanted to do a little bit of setups to tell the story about how you got here to this insight. And then I want to start telling the story of, of all about them. I want to start working through some of the content because some of it is I picked up things that I kind of maybe intuited, but I didn't have any kind of a relationship with the idea well enough that I could think about it. And the book has done that for me. So I want to just start right at the beginning with why is nobody happy? <laughs> that came from a great Louis C.K. comedy routine where he says everything's amazing, nobody's happy. And he goes through this whole routine about people sitting on airplanes complaining that they had to wait 15 minutes or there were no blue corn chips. And he says, did you ever realize you're sitting on an easy chair in the sky? <laughs> yeah. You know, the entire history of man is that we've wanted to be able to fly. The mystery, the beauty, the freedom of flight. Now we can do it. And we complain about the fact that our, that our luggage got dented. And part of the reason is we are endowed with such incredible opportunities and such incredible technologies that, let's face it, we can't even wrap our heads around. I mean, we get on planes, we buy our tickets, we fly in them. And if I asked you, you could probably explain to me that the shape of the wing takes the thrust and forces higher pressure of air under the wing and less pressure over the wing. And that's why the plane lifts off. Okay, theoretically, we get it. But can you really explain to me how the hell we fly, how you could take an airplane that weighs what it weighs and actually put it in the air and get it somewhere safely? We really have no way of wrapping our heads around these things. If you look at the last piece of software you bought, it doesn't matter what, but say it was a spreadsheet program and you're using it and then they come out with upgrade and you rush to get the upgrade. And let's face it, when you upgrade it, something screws up and then you have to rebuild it. All those things happen, right? What does the upgrade do? It allows the computation to go from one one hundredth of a nanosecond to one thousandth of a nanosecond, meaning it's absolutely inconsequential to our usage of that software. Yet we rush out and do it and then we complain about it afterwards. Because we have just these incredible, incredible access to so many things. Now, that causes a big problem if you're the person manufacturing these things. Because who the hell needs them? The truth is, we don't need them. Most products, in fact, I might dare say all products today, functionally do everything they need to do. I want to get into that. I just want to first argue with you that this is the iPhone uh, 6S Plus, And I think they're going to announce the 7 
on the same day your book comes out. Yeah. Yeah. And I will be buying one of those. I'll be in line. And even though the speed will not be perceptible to me at all, I know in my heart that it's better. I have a friend who says, you don't buy Apple products. You subscribe to them. Exactly. Steve Jobs figured out how to print money with the creating this demand. I want to get into this because I want to talk to you about this very idea that what are the outcomes for businesses when everything works equally well? And it does. And I say this on stage. I call it level one value. Everybody does good work now. Everything is commoditized. And we now live in a hyper-connected world where everybody can buy or see all of this happening in real time. What's the result of that for businesses and branding? Well, if you do not pay attention to it, let's look at two kinds of businesses, right? The ones that don't pay attention to it and then the ones that are hip to it. If you don't pay attention to it, then what happens is you find your market share just continues to erode because the last point of those three that you put out that everybody is connected means there's an entire continent, in fact, continents, plural, of people who are willing to do the work that you're doing for a whole lot less remuneration, simply because they've never had access to the markets we have access to. So if, as you said, they can do the work equally as well, they now have the networked ability to reach to your customers. What is it about what you do that's going to keep your customers loyal to you. And I know what happens. You have this conversation with people and they'll say, yeah, I get that. If you're doing, oh, I don't know, photo retouching or something that they sort of disdain and they give you the back of the hand. If you're programming websites, yes, you could have it done in India and Malaysia. But what I do, oh no, it requires degrees and it requires all kinds of knowledge. You can't replace that. Yeah, radiologists used to say that. Except now when you're at the hospital, they over the magic of the internet, right? They send your x-rays or your MRIs or whatever to India where radiologists read it in what we consider night, but for them is the working day. And the next day your doctor has all of the interpretation. So then the doctor says, okay, that's going to happen to the radiologist, but that's never going to happen to me because I'm a physician and I'm hands-on and I'm eye to eye. Except now we already know that there are telemedicine programs where you are going to be scanned right now with big machines, pretty soon with your iPhone 8 probably. It's going to do it. And that information might be sent to another country or might be sent to an AI system that's going to be able to look at all of the symptoms that you're offering against a database of world health and come back with what the best suggestions are. And so this concept of function being cost of entry is what we all need to look at. It used to be that you would buy a Mercedes or a Volvo because they were simply better automobiles. They were more reliable, more durable, safer, all those things. And you would pay more for them because they were better. They would last longer. Now you would have a very hard time convincing me that one of those automobiles is better than a Hyundai or a Kia. First of all, they're designed by the same software and they're designed in many cases by the same people. Porsche does design work for Kia. So at that point, What is it that's going to differentiate product and get consumers to buy from you, not from me, or not from the person who they can find online? Well, I read enough of the book that I know the punchline here, but I don't want to get there yet. (laughs) I I want to go a little bit further before we get there. I want to just ask a really, really fundamental question because we say words all the time. We use words. And sometimes I don't think that we really know what we're saying when we say certain words. So I want to talk to you about the word branding. And I want you to explain to people, what is branding? Because we have all this confusion about, why I have this personal brand and all this other stuff. But from a person who spent decades now working on design and branding, what is branding? 
I'll just ask you the follow-up to what's the benefits of a strong brand recognition and being a known quantity? I'm so glad you asked that question because that is one of my pet peeves. I equate it to, I tell them, you know, it's like when someone, people nowadays misuse the word literally and they'll say like, you'll say, dude, I am like literally starving. You go, no, you're not. Because if you're literally starving, you'd be laying on the ground, clutching your stomach. Or they say, dude, I literally have your back. No, then you'd be holding my spine in your hand, right? So branding's the same thing. People think a brand is a logo or they think it's a tagline or you mentioned personal branding. That's great because you'll talk to people who say, oh, I have this great personal brand. I always wear hats or I always wear cowboy boots. And go, no, that's kind of like, you know, that's a color or that's a font. That's or, a gimmick. That's a thing, right? And by the way, guess what? The day you stop wearing hats, people probably still know who you are. That's not what a brand is. All of those things are manifestations of the brand. All of those things, they're like the plumage on a bird. Those things tell you that, oh, that's a cardinal. I get it because I see the red feathers. Or, oh, that's a blue jay. Why blue feathers? But that's not what the brand is. The brand, quite simply, is the relationship between you and the consumer that does two things. It reinforces the purchase. So you buy like your Apple product, you're going to buy it and you're going to be incredibly happy with it because knowing that it's Apple and all of the relationship you have with Apple, by the way, I'm a fanboy as well. So I get it. All of that relationship reinforces the purchase, but more importantly, it pre-enforces the purchase before you buy the product. You already have a sense of what that product, not what it's going to do, because then we're back in that function conversation. You have an idea of what that product is going to do for you, how it's going to improve the context of your life. So you said earlier, I know that this is a 6S plus and the 7 is going to come out and I'm going to run out on the first day and buy it. And then what did you say? And I'm going to be very happy. Yes. That's pre-enforcement, right. isn't it? And you're not going to be very happy because of the function, because guess what? The phone you have now works pretty well, right? And it it's does all perfect. Things, and it does so many things that you never even conceived of. And I know you're a tech guy, so you get it. But it also does so many things that you don't even know it does. Yes. That you dislike some, someone will say to you, oh, you want to check that? Just drag to the left. And you go, oh, my God, I didn't know it could do that. And I've only used one of these since the first one came out, right? So that's what the brand is. The brand is the relationship. The brand is, you could say it's the reputation. Some people say it's the promise. Some people say it's what they say about you when you leave the room, but it's not the things. It's when someone says to you, Hey, I got a new brand and they show you their logo. That's not the brand. That's just a way you demonstrate that the brand is in the house. I'm 17% smarter now having heard you say those things. So thank you for that. <laughs> and and you know everybody listening is. Yes. And they say 78% of all statistics are made up on the spot. So <laughs> I made that one up on the spot. I knew that. Pre-enforcement is a significant idea for people to think about with the relationship of what is it. And to me, it's a tendency towards meaning. And I want to see if I can lead you down this path and you can correct me where I'm wrong. But I see this when everything is equal then I think that for consumer products specifically, there's this trend towards this product is who I am. It's my identity and it all looks aspirational. So let me hear your thoughts on where we're going with this and I'll lead you into more of all about them. Well, you just mentioned two points that are very important to this whole thing. You said about aspiration and to completely mix my metaphors here, you know, Wayne Gretzky had that great quote, I don't skate to the puck, I skate to the, where the puck is going to be. I know nothing about hockey, having grown up in Miami, we have no ice, and field hockey just made no sense at the time. However, 
One of the things that Gretzky said about that, I skate to where the puck is going to be, is really, if you think about it metaphorically, in a branding situation, it's the aspiration, right? Don't sell to your consumers. Sell to who your consumers want to be. If you can do that, then what happens is you make them better by buying your product. You said earlier, it's not about the product. It's about the consumer. The line I use is we used to say you are what you eat. We now say you are what you consume. The Today's consumer tells the world who they are, why they matter, where they find meaning through consumption. Why? Because to go all the way to the beginning of this conversation about everything's amazing, nobody's happy, there really isn't anything that they don't have in their lives. People who have the money who become consumers, of course, there's plenty of people who don't have these things, although I have to say they aspire to the same things we do. However, the idea is that people tell the world who they are by what they consume. The saying is that the generations before us were known by the wars they fought, our generation is known by the things we bought. It's interesting because we're on Skype right now. So this is an audio recording, but we're looking at each other, both wearing the white Apple headphones, which was just a brilliant design concept because you immediately identified who you are by having the white headphones. All headphone cables were black. Right? Think of who you identified yourself to. Yes. The first consumers guys like you, the road warriors who are out doing all of this business that now is pretty common in the gig economy, but wasn't when this product came out, right? You used to get on the plane, you would hear, boom, it is now safe to put on all electronic devices. And there were certain ways you were able to identify to the other class of road warriors who you were. One was to reach into your bag and pull out that big black thing and unzip it where you had your Bose noise canceling headphones. And if you remember, and I know you had a pair and I don't even know that. I still have a pair. Of course, but you didn't tell me that, but I know you do because I know who you are. When you would put them on, you would see people in the airplane looking around to see who else had them. And you kind of get that little nod, right? That, That little head drop nod. Then... It was those envelopes where you had your Netflix CD movie. Now, of course, people go, oh, my God, yes, I used to do that in the cave on my dinosaur. But back then, you'd hear, boom, it is now safe to take out all electronic devices. And people would pull out those envelopes. And Netflix was so smart because not only could you keep the movie as long as you wanted, but you could send back someone else's movie. So if we're sitting next to each other in the plane and I'm watching one movie and you're, I'm watching Some Like It Hot and you're watching Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, at the end, we could swap them and send them back. And Apple did the white headphones. And you know, when they first came out, you bought better headphones at some point because these little, the old ones, not the new ones, but the old ones hurt your ears. Do you remember what you did with your headphones when you bought the better ones? You probably threw them in a drawer. You had a drawer of all that stuff, right? The old USB cables and everything else. But you could have gone on eBay and sold them to kids in Asia who couldn't buy, at the time, iPods. So they bought what they called faux pods, which were white headphones, And then they put either a cigarette pack or a piece of wood. You know, the old story. Is that an iPod in your pocket? Are you happy to see me? That became a thing because these white headphones, and by the way, it's not lost on me that we're both wearing black shirts that the white (laughs) headphones really beautifully are featured on top of, right? Those headphones became the way you told the world who you were. We've learned a lot about each other right now, haven't we? (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) I want to ask you to get into a little bit more specificity. I want to ask you, in this age of transparency, what are the rule changes for brands now that everything is visible and everything is known about you and about your brand? And I'll maybe just give you a little bit of a hint of a direction on this. I'm just thinking of, if I go to a restaurant and I have a bad experience or good experience, I can go on to Yelp 
and I can write whatever I want, which is to me one of the most interesting business models. Yelp creates a platform for people to write scathing reviews about the interaction they had with your establishment, and then they come to you to ask you for advertising dollars. But there's something there, and everything that we do now is visible if we want it to be. And so as a person who runs a business or sells something, you're living in a very different world where in an older times, there might be word of mouth, but it was mostly impotent, right? Yeah, what were you going to do? In the old days, if you had a bad experience, you would write a letter. And just think about it. If it was a hotel, you'd be in a new town. I mean, you'd be back in your hometown. How could you even write a letter? You couldn't even find the address of the hotel you had stayed at in Minneapolis or in New York or wherever because you didn't have access to the phone book from that place. But let's say you finally wrote that letter and you sent it to What would happen? Three weeks later, you would get back a nice piece of stationery and it would say, dear sir or madam, thank you for bringing that experience to our attention. Let us assure you that we have rectified the incidents and this will never happen again. That was it. I mean, I could have called my buddy and said, hey, guess what? You don't want to stay at that hotel. But that was pretty much it. Now, first thing you do, whatever the issue is, you take a picture of it and then you write six letters, right? WTF, OMG. And then you write what the problem is. There's a giant cockroach in my hotel room and boom, instantly, the entire world has access to it. And if the hotel or the restaurant is not paying attention to their Yelp feed or to Facebook or Twitter or whatever, they don't even know this is happening. So this level of transparency is almost, Stephen Wright said, if you put instant coffee in a microwave, you go back in time. It's almost hyperbolized to a really, to the nth degree. The other thing is that if someone wants to do business with you, They know everything they want to know about you before they ever see you, right? If I was invited to do this interview with you, and I'm in Florida, and you're in Ohio, and this was 20 years ago, obviously, we wouldn't have done it on Skype, but we would have had to spend time telling each other who we were, what we are, why we matter. By now, before I came on, you've already looked at me on YouTube, you've watched my TEDx video, you've gone to my blogs, I've looked at your stuff, I've read your stuff. And if I'm not that kind of person that I don't care about details and specificity, then I'm not going to anyways. So transparency is critical because people have access to everything you've done, good, bad, and otherwise. What's that great line about everything you email, you put on Facebook or tweet? You have to only write things that you would not be uncomfortable if it was read in front of your grandmother or in court while you were sitting on trial, right? So (laughs) that's very good advice. But the other thing is you can stop talking about yourself because people know everything about you. That gets back to the all about them concept. Instead of telling me why you're so great, tell me why you make me so great. That's what I care about. And that will overcome the negative stuff. If in fact, that complaint I said about the hotel was about a hotel you've never heard of, what you're going to say is, okay, I'm not going to go there. Or a hotel that has a bad reputation. But if that comment was about a good hotel, I don't want to pick on anyone in particular, but you know, a Four Seasons or a Ritz-Carlton or something, then you'd say, eh, you know what? I already know who they are. I'm confident that that was a slip up at best. And I told that to someone, they said, well, that's because I've been to those hotels. I said, okay, well, what if it was for the peninsula? I've never been to the peninsula, but I'm pretty, or the Connaught in London, but I'm pretty sure that if I read that about the Connaught, I would think, wow, they must've had a bad day. Not, oh my God, the sky is falling. I will never go there. Reinforce and pre-enforce comes back in this instance. I I love the pre-enforce. It's such a powerful concept for me. I was at the Four Seasons in San Francisco for a Sales 2.0 conference where I was speaking. And when I got there, I'd lost a button. A button fell off of my jacket. 
And I walked up and I handed it to the people behind the desk, the concierge desk. And I said, is there any way you could have somebody sew this button on this jacket for me tomorrow? I need it. And they said, absolutely, sir, we'll take care of it. And I checked into my room and four minutes later, there was somebody standing there with it already sewed. Wow. They'd already sewn the button back onto the jacket. And I'm like, well, that's the Four Seasons, you know, and that's my experience with them. And if something goes wrong at a Four Seasons, you can be pretty sure because the brand is so strong. It is pre-enforced. You know, you're staying at a place where there's a great deal of care and a great deal of differentiation outside of we're going to make sure that you have a bed to sleep in. And you and I both stayed at those hotels, too. Let me ask you about differentiation, because this, I think, is becoming a bigger and bigger deal. And I have a framework called level four value creation, which is you have to get past product because that's a level playing field now. You have to get past service and support because that's pretty much a level playing field now, too. And you have to get past just a return on investment. You have to get to bigger strategic outcomes and meaning. And we'll get into context here in a minute. But how does one differentiate their brand now that we live in? What I'm going to say, you can disagree with me. I think it's everything is cluttered. It's super crowded. Now that everybody has access to the tools to be able to share, it's harder and harder to differentiate yourself. Give me your your thoughts on that. You said I could disagree with you. I don't disagree with you at all. I actually agree with you. Where I would take it a little bit differently is something that I call the myth of uniqueness. We are so convinced that we need to be unique that we wind up spending time, money, effort, heartache on what I think is actually a fool's errand. Because first of all, uniqueness, which is the extension of differentiation, right? Uniqueness is next to impossible. The word unique defines as unlike any other. It doesn't say kind of unlike any other or sort of unlike any other. It's unlike any other. It's absolute. It's like you can't be a little excellent you can't be a little perfect. You can't be a little pregnant. You either are or you're not. There's, there's no in-between. And unique is the same thing. The problem is consumers don't want unique. If they did, then they would be out there looking for products specifically and solely created for them, which unless you're in very high bespoke product categories, mostly don't exist. Instead, what they want is what they know taken to the next level. So Steve Jobs said, it's not my customer's business to know what they want next. A hundred years before that, we've all heard it. Henry Ford said, if I asked my customers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. They didn't understand automobiles could be transportation. They just wanted horses that worked a little bit better, maybe didn't stop so often to eat or didn't get sick or whatever. But if you're unique, if you have an incredible sense of differentiation, Consumers don't understand who you are, what you are, or why you matter. And you have a very long learning curve to get them to want to purchase your product. If you look at unique people throughout history, Joan of Arc was unique. She was burned at the stake. Van Gogh was unique. He cut off his ear and ultimately committed suicide. He didn't become a superstar painter until after his death. If you look more to our era at musicians, Jimi Hendrix and Jim Morrison and those folks, Janis Joplin, they were all unique and they all died from drug overdoses. My guess is to overcome the issue of being so unique. So the word you use differentiation is much more important. What is it that differentiates you, meaning separates you from the crowd, but still within an area that consumers can understand? That's really what's required. Everything else you said about laddering up above product, above function, above service is critical because those things have become cost of entry. And so the meaning issue 
is what matters. Where I think we've differentiated in this book and in the work we do for our clients is we don't try to give our clients products or services meaning. We try to show our clients how their products or services expand the consumer's meaning. The line we use all the time is a good brand makes you feel good, but a great brand makes you feel good about yourself. We're back to aspiration. Because that's where it's going. We are all on a journey. We're all going somewhere. We're all trying to accomplish something. If I only want to fill my belly, if I only want to protect myself from the elements, if I only want to get from point A to point B, I can buy any product. <laughs> it all comes back to that. Yeah. I mean, so when you've got your needs for food and shelter and water and oxygen, and you've got love and belongingness, and you start to move up that hierarchy of Maslow's work. I mean, we live in a rich country, and we live in a, a really, really good time to be alive. When all those needs are met, it has to shift to meaning, right? It absolutely does. What's left? If you sell based on function, you are just another one in the crowd. And, you know, people say to me, yeah, 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 but that's why people buy things. And, of course, I disagree with that, as I now know that you do as well. But I'll give them examples. When was the last time your car didn't get you from point A to point B? When was the last time your TV did not produce the show that you wanted to be able to watch on it? They used to not do that. I mean, you remember I wrote about it in the book televisions. The dials used to break. You'd have like a vice grips on the dial. Right? When I was a kid, the antennas didn't work. I was the antenna. My yeah. dad's watching the game. He'd say, stand there. Wait, put your arm up. Okay, turn. Okay, don't move. And I'm like on my left foot with my right hand in my ear, right? I was the antenna. That doesn't happen anymore because it's coming through cable or HD or Wi-Fi or something technologically. I don't even care. All I know is, remember those old weird remote controls that you'd press the button and it'd make that funky and then it, the remote wouldn't remote? The TV companies knew that. I mean, I'm sorry, the networks knew that. So they'd have a really good show followed by an introducing what was turned out to be a crappy show. But you wouldn't get off, up off the couch to walk to the TV to change the channel. And they knew that because the remote control didn't work. That doesn't happen anymore. Now the remote control is in my phone. It's in my Sono system. I have all those little gizmos. I think I can blink my eyes or click my fillings together in the channel to change. Um, the function of it is irrelevant because it always works. It's about meaning. Let's move to the difference between content and context. And I want to ask you about the difference in the outcome there, number one. And then what about the emotional appeal? What is it about emotion and meaning that drives purchasing decisions? In the early 90s, Nicholas Negroponte, who ran the MIT Media Lab, he wrote a great book. It's still a great book. The technology is outdated, but it's called Being Digital. And in it, he coined the phrase that we all use, content is king. And he explained why Disney, which had a much lower revenue stream than AT&T, had an almost similar market cap. And the reason was because AT&T at the time was only in the distribution business. They were in the function business. They were getting signals from here to there. Whether they used satellite or copper, twisted pair or whatever, it didn't matter. But Disney owned content. And what he talked about was that if you have Mickey Mouse, you can put Mickey Mouse on a video. You can put Mickey Mouse on a book. You can stamp him on a lunchbox. You can put him at a resort. And you can sell it in all those different ways because, in his word, content was king. And that was true for years and years until the distribution became democratized. And now that we have access to everything, content once again becomes cost of entry. And what matters is context. How does your product or service live and more importantly, affect 
the context within which I am developing my life. I'm on my journey. Marshall McLuhan said, I don't know who discovered water, but it wasn't a fish. And the water is the context. We're all swimming in it. And by the way, there's a great way to watch this right now. And I'm not taking sides here at all, I promise. But watch the presidential election. It is probably the largest branding exercise in the world for a zero-sum game. You win or you don't. There's no second place, right? Second place, perhaps VP, goes to the winner as well. So you either win or you don't. And it's all about getting people to use a limited resource, their vote, could be seen the same as money, to make the decision that the candidates want made. And it's all based on this sense of feeling and meaning and context. Because you and I have argued this personally on the phone. The issues, most people don't even know them. And they think they do, but they only know one. They don't know all of them. And let's be honest, I'm not picking on anyone here. It's impossible to understand them all anyways because of the depth of meaning that goes on here. So what happens is the candidate becomes my extension, my surrogate. I am with this person or that person because I see myself as this person and becoming this person. That's the context. The issue, the vote, the regulations, the laws, those are the content. But what this person as the leader of my country, of my life, what that means, that's the context. And that's all emotional. I just want to go back to the original documents and make the person who comes in second place the vice president. I think that would be a lot of fun. <laughs> if, if regardless of who wins the other ones of the VP, that would be television worth watching. Then if you were first place, you would have to have a double secret service. <laughs> yeah, a food taster. You know, they already have a food taster. I believe they do. <laughs> I'm going to ask you to do one other thing, and then I'm going to ask you some more personal questions. Can you just walk us through the pyramid of success? Because I think I jumped ahead in the book prep, preparing for this interview, and I saw that, and it's just... It's one of those things that I can't replicate it here, but we'll point people to the book, but just walk people through because it's so simple and so profound. It just explains everything. And I want to give people just the taste of the value that's in the book and maybe flip some thinking. Thank you. I I actually think that is a real compliment, simple yet profound. I have to say, that's what I tried to do. The first time I wrote, I started writing the book, I read the first two chapters and they bored me. Because it was profound, you know, but it wasn't simple and it wasn't amusing. So I went back and I rewrote and simple, but well, profound. It, it, it's all it about was, them. It's how do you convey the message so that exactly. people can immediately get it. And I, you see it and you go, I got it. That I, was the exactly, thank you. That was exactly what I was shooting for. I didn't want them to say, wow, this guy is smart. I wanted them to say, wow, I can use this. I get it. Yeah. So thank you. So the pyramid's very simple. You draw a pyramid triangle. I don't know if it's, if it's obtuse or whatever, but you just draw a triangle and then divide it into five sections at the bottoms. And then, by the way, this is your map. You can do the work on your laptop or on a legal pad, but you use this map for finding your brand positioning. On the bottom section, you write your features. That is everything your business service company has, how many trucks you have, how many computers you have, what you do, say habla espanol, how many locations, all that stuff. It's completely objective. By the way, these are what are called RTBs, reasons to believe. And these are where most companies do their marketing, right? Look at all the stuff we have. Come do business with us, which why would I care? But you got to put them down because you got to know what you're working with. So I have this degree. We have these subscriptions. I have this many people. We have these locations. All that stuff gets written down. You do an inventory of what you have. 
You then ladder up one section and you write P-O-D. And P-O-D stands for two things. It stands for point of difference. And you and I already discussed difference, not unique selling proposition, not what is our snowflake, what is our thumbprint, what is our eye scan, but where are we different? And P-O-D also stands for point of distinction. Where are we better? Where are we really good? Not where are we excellent? Because then again, we're back into that, what Sting said, the search for perfection is all very well, but to look for heaven is to live in hell. I don't want to know where you're excellent. I just want to know where you're better. What are you really good at? And we can be honest about it. Here's what we're really good at. So you don't have to worry about the things you're not so good at. You then ladder up one more step and you write functional benefits. Now, this is what your customer gets physically or mentally by using your product or service. If you're a restaurant, you fill their belly. You give them a place to go for an hour. Whatever. If you're a grocery store, you provide access to groceries. If you're a lawyer, you help them with their legal issues. This is where most companies stop. That's exactly my frame, Bruce. I call this level three value. I mean, the, and I'm the, on the, the third level. That's funny. The, this is where most companies, and now it's no longer unique. Everybody can get to this point. So keep going. That's right. Because nowadays, if your product does not provide what you call level three and what I call functional benefits, you're not in business, right? It's cost of entry. It's ante. It's table stakes. You throw your ante down, they let you play poker. doesn't mean you win or you have any skills. It only means you're now in the game. So then we ladder up a step higher. This is where the magic happens. And this is called emotional benefits. What are the emotional benefits of doing business with me? So if I'm a, let's say I'm a small restaurant in an industrial park. At the very bottom, features. What are my features? I have 18 tables. I have whatever that equals in, in chairs. I have a coffee machine. I have air conditioning. I have all those things. Okay, then you ladder up. What are my points of difference? Well, I'm the only restaurant in this industrial park. Okay, that's good. What else? Oh, we use my mom's boliche recipe. That's pot, Cuban pot roast. Oh, okay, that's good. What are my points of distinction? Our prices are good. Our service is good. All the things we talked about earlier. Our food is good. Our product is good. What are the functional benefits of doing business with me? Well, if you're hungry, you can come have a meal. You need your people to work through lunch so you can call us and we'll deliver food to your office. How about, you know what? There's a lot of traffic to get here. So we open at six. Why don't you come an hour early, have coffee, have some eggs, read the newspaper. You don't have to fight the traffic. Or you know what? You and your spouse both work. Instead of going home and then giving your kids fast food, we'll have prepackaged meals so you can take home a good meal. Those are the functional benefits of doing business with me. So now we ladder, and that's where most companies stop. And that's where you get the flyer in the mail that shows the menu and has the prices and shows the little map and says, we deliver, say, habla espanol and whatever else. But let's ladder up a step further. What are the emotional benefits of doing business with us? Well, you feel guilty because you get home late and you can't give your kids a wholesome meal and they wind up because you get home and they're screaming they're hungry. So we can package a wholesome, nutritious meal. What does that mean? You're a better parent. Or you don't have to come in the office last minute because of traffic and miss a meeting. Come in early and we'll give you breakfast. You're a better employee or you're a better boss. We can make your career better. We can make your life better. Now, that's not your tagline. That's not your the ultimate driving machine or just do it. That's not your logo. That's your sense of meaning. And that takes you up to the fifth point at the very top of the pyramid, which is where the brand value 
lives. That's where the magic happens. That's where the poetry is. That's where you take the emotional benefits of the product or service and say, here's how we communicate it so that we can reinforce and pre-enforce. Here's where that lives. It's amazing. Everybody should draw that and do that work. It, it, it's worth <laughs> doing it because if you get stuck at one or two, business is tough. You got to move beyond that now. That's a great framework. I'm going to ask you some personal sort of speed round James Lipton inside the actor's studio kind of questions. Okay, I'm ready. What are you reading right now? I am reading the new book by Caleb Carr called Surrender New York. He wrote The Alienist and Angels of Darkness. I don't read a lot of novels. I love novels, but I always feel like I should be reading business stuff. But when I saw Caleb Carr had a new book, I ran out and bought it. I feel the same way. I always feel like I should be reading something. And I found out on an evaluation I took, I'm what's called a low reader. So I read and I'm just strictly looking for the actionable ideas as I read through books. And so when you get to a novel, boy, that's a big, big shift. It forces me to slow down to actually pay attention. Like I can't start daydreaming in the middle of it because then they'll say, and then Bill walked past the cliff and I go, what cliff? And then <laughs> I have to turn back. Where are we? <laughs> exactly. What's the most important book you've ever read and why? There's more than one. That Boy, that's really hard to say, but I will tell you the you most- imp- Give us multiple. Okay, thank you. The most important one I read recently within the last maybe two years was a book called How to Live by Sarah Bakewell. It is the biography of Michael Monfort, the French essayist who wrote in the 1500s, and he's considered the world's first blogger because he created the essay. He has these essays that you can read today that are absolutely amazing because they're about life today. I mean, clearly they don't plug stuff in or get into cars, but it's all about intrigue and who likes who and who said what to who. So she wrote his biography, but she used his essays as the organizing principle of them. And as a writer, for me, that was just, she writes so beautifully and it was so wonderful to read. So that's one. Another one, for the exact same reason, was the first time I read Malcolm Gladwell's books, plural, Blink, Outliers, and first of all, Tipping Point. I thought what he wrote about was great and fascinating, but more importantly to me, it was a new way of writing a business book. Because as we talked about a little bit a minute ago, the way I used to look at it were business books were things I had to read and novels were books I enjoyed reading. But novels are, it's easy to make a novel a page turner, right? You just cliffhanger, literally you make a cliffhanger. You get to the end of the chapter, the guy's hanging on the cliff. Oh my God, I can't go to sleep now. I have to read another chapter. Business books don't work that way. Business books, you read them, you take notes, and you may or may not need to read the next page until you're ready to, except for Gladwell. Gladwell writes business books that make you turn the page. So his books are up there. Another great book, a book titled How by Dov Seidman, who talks about how you do anything is how you do everything and talks about why the context of your life matters and why the way you live your life matters. It's moral, it's ethical, but not in a preachy way, but in a practical way. So he takes the stuff that we've been taught since we were little kids, except shows you why it matters in your life. That was a hugely significant book for me. What's interesting about that is that when you talk to thoughtful people and people who spend their time introspecting, it always gets to people. It always gets to human behavior. It always gets to psychology. It always gets to the things that haven't changed much in three and a half million years that we've been homo, whatever. It always gets to that. It's interesting that you picked a bunch of those. 
If you want proof of that, Mark Anthony's meditations, you know, written way back when in the golden age of the Roman empire. Yeah. And it's all about how you treat people and how you deal with people. And, and then you read the Prince by Machiavelli. I, you know, I was saying things are Machiavellian for all these years. And then I realized I hadn't read the Prince since high school. And I think I didn't remember any of it. So I went back and read it. And then I went, Oh, okay. I get it. Things haven't changed much. Not, not at all. <laughs> that does make you think. Who's had the biggest influence on your thinking? My father. When I started my business, my father said to me, you're starting a business that's called the confidence of ignorance. And uh, he was absolutely right. But I used to watch the way my dad ran his businesses, ran his life. My dad, my, both my parents were very, very involved in the civil rights movement in the late 50s and early 60s. And my dad lived a life based on his principles and what mattered to him. And it wasn't just oh, those pie-in-the-sky principles. It was also having a successful business and raising a family and doing all those things. My dad was able to do those balances. And he was a runner, which I am, and he was a musician, which I am. And he figured out how to do that, how to live his life and how to use his talents. He was a polymath. How to use that. Now, I can't do the things he does. Of course, we're different people. But he really was and is my inspiration. That's awesome. What's the most important lesson you've learned in life up to this point? Wow, that's a big one. Right. Well, get, there's one more that's bigger, so just hang tight. <laughs> oh, boy. I think, and it works on a lot of levels, and I think the minute after I hang up, I'll think, wait, no, it's this. <laughs> but <laughs> what comes to mind right now is your kids, and then I would probably say your employees and the people around you learn by what you do, not by what you say. That's a tough one sometimes, huh? Oh, it sure is. You want to say, yeah, don't do it. Don't do as I say. Do as I, I said to my wife the other day, she was having a disagreement with our daughter. And I said to her afterwards, I said, honey, when was the last time anyone convinced you of anything by yelling at you? <laughs> and of course, that was a stupid thing for me to say because she was still angry. Not at me, but of course, then it became at me. But it was really true. She found a new target. <laughs> yeah, yes, we distracted. We distracted her. But, you know, they learn by what they've seen you do and what you do and your actions do speak louder than words. And it's great to be out there speaking. But, but nowadays, as you said about the transparency with, with online, it's even more true than ever, isn't it? People have access to all the dumb stuff you've done. Yeah, no doubt about it. I remember watching my mom work from six o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night to raise four kids by herself. And I didn't understand anything that was going on at seven or nine or 11 years old, but now I work just like she does. I mean, I get up at five, I work till 10 and I picked that up. I picked up her values, even though I tried to resist them by going out and fronting a hair metal band for most of my youth and not starting college till 26. But you pick that stuff up and in subtle ways, you find out later on that that had the impact. So here's something we just learned about each other. I front an R&B band. <laughs> oh, Yeah. So one day we're going to have to uh, see if we can do a mashup. When I'm in Miami. I would love that. We're playing October 1st. We're doing a book signing and the band is going to play. So come on down. I have a guest house. I have room for you. Um, come you on down. Here. I've been invited. This is not you, me imposing on Bruce. No, 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 no. <laughs> I, but you got to get up in front of the band. I don't, we don't do any hair metal, but you don't have any hair. So That's I think true. That, so I have a, a good, impeccable eyebrows though. You do. You give good eyebrows. <laughs> If you weren't writing, speaking, and consulting, what would you be doing? Oh, see, that you said was the tougher question. That's easy. No, that's I'd, not the tough one. Hang tight. Oh, oh, darn it. <laughs> I'd be busking. I'd be playing music on street corners. I, I always carry uh, instruments with me when I travel, and I find people to play with, and 
because I'm a marketing guy and I'm an entertainer by what I do with the band, they always get a lot more money thrown in their guitar case when I play with them. Not because I'm such a good musician, by the way, but because I know how to interact. I know how to make it all about them, right? So that's what I would do. My wife and I were just in Cuba. My wife was born there and hadn't been back since she was a little girl. We were just in Cuba. And so I got to play with a guitar player on the streets in Havana. And I got to play with a salsa band at some restaurant at night. Everywhere I've traveled, I find people on the streets to play with. That's what I would be doing. So you're like the David Lee Roth of R&B. So you're the ringmaster right in the center. Well, it's a very interesting, and I'll try to make a quick story. I played in a band for years. I was never the front guy in the band. First of all, I'm not a great, as you can probably hear from my voice, I don't have a nice, smooth, I can't do the pretty songs, you know? And I had throat surgery, which makes it worse. I was in this band, and we practiced this song, Too Tall to Mambo. It's by the Nighthawks. It's a New Orleans song. We practiced it all the time. We never played it out. And every week, we'd play out, every two weeks, and I'd say to the guitar player, hey, why don't we play this song? And no, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. So one night, I said to him, hey, Chris, why don't we play Too Tall Mambo? And he said, if you want to play it, you freaking sing it. And I said, all right. <laughs> so I got up there, and I sang the song, and at the refrain, where it's just, she's Too Tall to Mambo, I, I get the band quiet, and I say, who wants to get it? Who wants to be a rock star? Who wants to come up here and sing with me? So these three girls get up, and I say, look, it's not that hard. It's only four words, too tall, too mambo. And two of them are the same words. So it's really only three words. So we get the audience singing and I get everyone excited. And the song ends and we take a break. And I thought it went great. I don't think I sang it very well, but that's kind of irrelevant. That's the function argument, right? <laughs> right. So then I can't find the guitar player. I go outside. He's out there. He's drinking a beer. I say, Chris, what's wrong? He says, that song was awesome. I said, I know. So what's wrong? He says, you know what? I want to be a professional musician. No one gets up on stage or gets up and dances when I sing. You can't even sing, which is true. And yet you had everybody all excited. That's just not fair. I said, because Chris, you're trying to be a musician. They didn't come here to hear musicians. If they wanted to hear good music, they would stay home, put on headphones and listen to Leonard Bernstein conduct the New York Philharmonic playing Stravinsky. They wanted to come out, have a good time, get to enjoy themselves. If I look at somebody and wink, The girl says to him, oh, you know that guy? If they go home and had sex, we did our job. That's what it's all about. And personally, that's what life is all about, I think. I'm here to amuse you. You're here to amuse me. That's pretty much the way it works. There's no doubt. I mean, David Lee Roth, not the best singer. Absolutely the best front man because he understood it was his job to make sure that the party happened. And as long as there was going to be a party, it was going to be a great show. And to make sure that the great musicians like Eddie got to do their thing and he needed to reinforce. The audience needed to know how great that was. So after our guitar player, our drummer, we have an amazing drummer. We have an amazing saxophone player. After they play, I got to say, that was awesome. Don't you agree? Yeah. And then the crowd goes, oh, you know what? It was awesome. Ah! And they go crazy. No different than a good waiter who doesn't say, how's everything? But he says, Your steak was pretty terrific, wasn't it? Did you know that we get our steak from a farm and whatever? And then you go, oh, yeah, it was good. And then you have bragging rights. So the next day when someone says, hey, did you and your wife go out to dinner? Yeah, we went to Geppetto's. Do you know they get their steak from this little farm and blah, 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 blah. That's what it's all about. We're back to identity. Let's get to yours. What do you hope to be remembered for? You're right. I told you. I was saving that one. (laughs) It does get harder. Well, I just gave a eulogy at a funeral the other day, and I was talking about how your eulogy, and more importantly, the words written on your tombstone become your brand message, right? Because it's what you're remembered by. My personal favorite one is, I told you I was sick. (laughs) And the guy that I was doing it for was someone who was incredibly intense and a real mentor of mine. And I said that if you had to remember him by 
two words, it would have been all in because he was all in like you. He was up. I met him at the gym. I didn't even talk to him for two years. It was just, Hey, how you doing? And he'd go, but that's, that's how we met. So I think I would want to be known and I don't have this yet in eloquent little words, but that I lived my own life and I showed people how to make theirs better. That's awesome. Thanks so much for being here. It was a treat. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. If all you did was flip to the back of the book, draw the little pyramid that I just talked to Bruce about, and then did the work to outline how you go ahead and talk about each one of those areas and make it about the other person, you will have gotten more done to improve your relationship with your clients and your prospects, to change your focus from being self-oriented to other-oriented, to get rid of some of the egocentrism that salespeople are often accused of having, and a lot to develop your own personal brand Bruce's work is fundamental and it is extraordinarily useful. So go pick up the book all about them. Grow your business by focusing on others. We'll leave links for you to find the book on Amazon and Barnes and Noble and everywhere else in the show notes. That is Bruce and you can find him at bruceturkel.com. I am Anthony Anarino and you can find me at thesalesblog.com. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash Anarino. And right now you can find me at preorder.theonlysalesguide.com where you can pick up my new book. Thanks so much for being here. Go out to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. That helps us so much. And thank you for your support. And we will see you next time in the arena. There's no way we're getting out of this podcast without me pitching my new book, The Only Sales Guide You'll Ever Need, being published by Portfolio on October 11th, 2016. Right now, I've done something that no one else has ever done. I've delivered a package of bulk buy bonuses for you that are actual value, that have never been delivered before, and that are going to help you transform your own personal results and the results of your team. And I want to take 30 seconds and tell you what is inside the book. Inside the book is two sections. One section is about mindset. So it's about behaviors and beliefs and attitudes. And the second half of the book is skills. And what this is essentially is a deficiency model. So any area where you might need to improve to succeed in sales is in this book. Maybe it's your discipline. Maybe it's your attitude. Maybe it's your resourcefulness. Maybe you need help closing. Maybe you need help prospecting or developing your business acumen. It's all in there. So right now, go to preorder.theonlysalesguide.com and you're going to be able to download a couple chapters. In one of those chapters, you're going to find the table of contents, which will describe to you all of the attributes and all of the skills you need to succeed in sales now. This book will make you better. This book will help you grow. This book will help you develop into a trusted advisor, a consultative salesperson, and somebody who wins new business. So go check it out, preorder.theonlysalesguide.com. Look for the bonuses and do send me a note and let me know how you like the book. Go pick up the book now. I promise you're going to love it and you're going to be transformed. Audio editing and show notes by podcastfasttrack.com. Get 15% off your first month by mentioning this show.